Welcome to the Onside Podcast. We're here to share stories about innovation-driven entrepreneurship, inspire others, share knowledge, and build a community here in Atlantic Canada. Hey, everybody, you're listening to the Onside Podcast, the podcast for innovation-driven entrepreneurship in Atlantic Canada. I'm your host, Alex McCann, and this is Episode 5. Thanks so much for joining us. Today, we have an amazing guest, Julia Rivard Dexter, founder and CEO of Squiggle Park and Dreamscape. I'm so excited that you're here with us today in our first podcast that is being recorded live in the studio uh, because of all the stuff that we had to go through before with COVID-19. This is the first time I've been able to actually be in the studio. So I'm excited to have you here today. Oh, thanks, Alex. Thrilled to be here. Awesome. Awesome. Well, you know, you have such an interesting story and an interesting background, but I think maybe if we go way back kind of to the beginning, if you could tell us a little bit about some of the basics, where you're from, how did you end up here in Atlantic Canada, just sort of setting the stage for for our journey today. I think that would be pretty interesting and kind of kick things off. Sure. Um, I had a great upbringing. I, I grew up in northern Ontario, North, North Bay, Ontario. And I had a wonderful family, mom and dad and younger brother, Alex. I'll mention him because he's always been such a supportive <laughs> younger good brother. Name, good name. Yeah, um, yeah I, I, I think that I always had lots of good friends and I got really involved in sports really young. I was a swimmer from the time I was about six, training two times a day. And I always had a dream to be an Olympic athlete, even from from being a really young, chubby kind of kid. <laughs> I had this naive sense that I would make it somehow. And uh, yeah, just this unconditional support of these two wonderful parents uh, who raised me. We were pretty remote uh, up in North Bay, um, so there wasn't a lot to do, and sports just became my passion. And uh, yeah, and so I and I really kind of made that my focus until I was in high school, um, at which point I had a bad ski accident, which really kind of changed the course of, of my life. Um, probably for the better in hindsight, but at the time it was rough. And was skiing your first was skiing your first sport or what was your first sport that you started off in? Because we'll get to some of the adventurous stuff that you did a little bit later. But did you start off in skiing and, and other things? What were your first sports? I, I think swimming was probably one of my first sports. Um, my mom put me in ballet. I was seriously a that. pretty hefty kid. <laughs> <laughs> There's pictures of me in these little pink, you know, ballet suits. There's a story that she tells it after my first year doing ballet during the recital at the very end. They had the whole family there, my grandparents and everyone, everyone. And I got off the stage and I told them that I knew everything there was to know about ballet and I was done. So <laughs> I think that was really one of my first experiences. But swimming, I just fell in love with. Um, I wanted to be in the water all the time. Uh, yeah, so that was my first sport. And, and skiing was what we did in the winter as a family, but it was kind of just for fun. Yeah. And you, you, you made a transition from swimming, which you were quite competitive at, and eventually went into canoeing. That's right. But what happened that made you make the switch? You told me a little bit about that before, yeah. and I think it's uh, it's uh, quite quite something to make that that switch. What 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 uh, led you to that? Yeah, well, like you said, I was kind of at the point in my swimming career where I was just about to make it. You know, in the top twenty in the country, Canada Games level swimming, and. Uh, my friends and I were in gym class and we were doing cross country skiing. I, I wish it were downhill and I wish it were more exciting. <laughs> it's just, it's, it's kind of pathetic really. But we decided to build a jump at the bottom of a hill and I was a bit of a show off, I think. And I did, did the jump, tried to do a front flip and I landed on my neck and uh, compressed my spine and I 
I got a compression fracture that just really put me kind of in traction for several months. So I wasn't able to get out of bed. Um, and that was a really scary moment for me um, initially, just because I was really worried that I really hurt myself. Um, but as soon as I started getting better, it, it was scary for another reason, which is I had always identified as a swimmer. I thought that was going to be my life. And I realized pretty soon that everybody had just passed me at that point. And to get back into that sport would have been uh, just a huge uphill battle. And so I just kind of took stock of where I was at and decided, no, I'm going to I'm going to just try something new. Um, there happened to be a coach from Nova Scotia who would come to North Bay to coach our, our canoe club and uh, recruited us at high school. And and so I started uh, paddling when I was 18. I was really late starting, but I, again, fell in love with it. And it became a new, kind of my new Olympic journey started then. I realized, well, maybe I can do it still. Uh, yeah, so I set out to try to make the games at 18 in a new sport. <laughs> mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So you have a bit of that competitive competitiveness from a from an early age yeah 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 Yeah. interesting interesting well um you know you you tried out for the olympics Mm -hmm. you were an olympic level athlete do you do you miss the olympics do you miss that sort of competitive uh competitiveness in that way or do you feel that with your new ventures and your work today that that's been able to sort of satiate some of that competitive nature Mm, I don't think I miss being competitive. I think that was like my least favorite part of sport was just having to be so um, tough with other people. You know, there, there's there's a bit of a lack of a humanity there in terms of caring about other people because you're always competing against them. And and I didn't love that. I think I was good at it. I remember people telling me after I retired that, you know, you used to see, you were so scary. <laughs> and I thought, oh, God. But uh, I didn't feel that way. I felt like like pretty soft on the inside. Um, so I don't miss that part of it. I really miss the camaraderie of being in. Um, I shouldn't say I miss it. I, I used to miss the camaraderie of being in such a high performance team, mm-hmm. like being with people who all have the same focus the same vision of what's possible they're putting in the work nobody's cutting corners you know you're all trying to achieve something together that was amazing and I think in my business career I've I've tried to strive for that same high performance team again and again I I feel like only just recently over the last couple of years that have been able to achieve that again and that's that's something special and I think it's special because it, it is true it's true what they say about the fact that it's not the destination it really is the process and when I look back at the Olympic experience for me, it has nothing to do with the Olympics itself. It really, really was the journey. So I was having a meeting with my team the other day and just, it took a moment just to slow down and say, Hey guys, like look around because this moment is so special. We're trying to achieve something great, but we're all doing something special every day together. And we've got to love the process. And I don't know, I just feel like having that, um, perspective is, is a real gift, you know? Just knowing that you're in it again and you can actually enjoy it feels great. That's that's really powerful. It's interesting. I'm, I mean, I want to get to what you're doing with Squiggle Park, um, but I do know that you had a little bit of um, perhaps some some inspiration or uh, life experience as a young person, which you had mentioned to me before, kind of pushed you into being interested in sports. Can you tell me a little bit about what it was like uh, as a student um, and your experience at a younger age before you got into sports and and um, how that impacted your life and kind of, in a way, I feel like maybe it put you on this trajectory into what you're doing now. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mom was a teacher. She didn't teach when I was young. She taught before we were born, and then she she was a stay-at-home mom. But she was definitely very kind of academically inclined. Um, I was not. I was never a great student. It's not not for lack of wanting to be. I really did want to be a great student. I always loved pleasing. I think that's why I did well in sports when I was young. I always wanted to to show that I could be great for my coaches and my teammates. But um, in school, I never did achieve. I really struggled with reading. It never made sense to me. I felt like it was just a lot of work to try to to try to understand what I was reading so much so that I could never get the comprehension piece. Like it, I never got the story behind what I was reading. So it was never fun when I was young. And in grade four, they split our classes. So there was a three, four split and a four, five split. And they called it the dumb class and the smart class. <laughs> <laughs> like the teachers literally called it the dumb class and the smart class. And I was, um, I was in the dumb class and, um, and I think it, it really kind of, it definitely hurt at a certain level to feel like, wow, this is a, like a line has been drawn here. All my friends who are kind of the smart girls in my class are in the other class and I, I didn't make it. And I think that just made me really kind of focus even more on sports because I, I thought, you know what, I'm succeeding here and my coaches are seeing that I have potential. And for some reason, my teachers aren't seeing this potential in me. And so I'm going to focus where I know that I'm going to get that focus back. And it just made me really really um yeah turned to to the sports and swimming and, and work really hard and I never forgot that and, and I never enjoyed school I never enjoyed school until I got into my second undergraduate degree um which was here at the Nova Scotia College of Art and Design and that became a brand new educational experience for me because for the first time I really I, w- I had teachers who saw potential in me I really understood the subject matter I loved it um yeah, so that was the first time that I ever really liked mm-hmm. school. It took that long. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And and what did you study at uh, at uh, NASCAD? What was your what was your uh, subject area, and what did you like about it? Yeah, I, I started in fine arts. I wanted to be a painter. I love um, I love having a concept in my head and trying to to make it real. You know, to get it into a format that people can see and appreciate. So I, I love painting, and and that was my goal. But I also knew I needed to get a job to be employed. <laughs> I was very nervous about that. So I took graphic design and uh, graduated with a degree in graphic design, traditional design, uh, print medium stuff. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And and how did you go from, uh, you know, going from the, you know, you, you said that you were in the dumb class, which that just like kills me when I hear <laughs> you say that, because I, I think, you know, you're so accomplished. It's so interesting that, uh, you know, that you'd have a moment in time where you would feel that way. Uh, getting really great and have great results in sports, going to the the highest levels um, and making a transition in terms of your academic um, uh, pursuits, looking at graphic design and that kind of stuff. How did you how did you go from all of that to thinking about education and moving into developing your your company, Squiggle Park? Oh, that's a there's a big leap there. There's a lot that went on. I, I, I think I credit a lot of it, though, to just very specific individuals in my life who always believed in me and this idea that they knew I had p- potential well beyond what I even thought was possible. And it started with my parents. It really just they had kind of a blind faith that I would go on to be great. I don't know why they had it, but they believed it so much that that I just started to believe it, too. And so I think even when I was in that dumb class, I don't think anyone could have really shook that out of me. I, I believed I was going to be something great. And 
but wasn't going to be in academics. It was going to be in something else. And, you know, I had I had an, I had a professor at, at NASCA, Mei Chung, um, who same thing. I think she saw a lot of potential and really pushed me to be great. And when somebody sees that in me and wants to push me, I'll I'll take it to the end of the earth. I'll, I'll take it as far as I possibly can, because I respect that so much. The the fact that they see that potential. So. Yeah, I think that I think that it has been kind of individuals in my business career. There's been some advisors and mentors, same thing, who've really believed in me from from an early stage when there's no real reason to believe, and that that that's helped so much. So to take that forward to Squiggle Park and what we're doing with our with our company is, I really believe that every child has this limitless potential, and they just have to find their lane. You know, they just have to find where they can activate that potential. And it takes somebody to see it so that they can really be encouraged that it's there. And I think too few kids get that opportunity to have people in their lives who really see it and then really encourage them to keep going and push them to be the best. Because I think we can be pretty soft on our kids sometimes, too. Like when when kids show potential, it's really good to push them to really achieve. And there's cases where you, you see parents go overboard for sure, but... But I've always wanted to see every kid realize their potential because I was given such a great opportunity. And with our with our programs that we're doing now, we're trying to do that from from the literacy perspective because it's such a key building block to being successful in life. And that motivates me all the time is trying to make sure that every child has access to the world's best education that can at least get them started on that pathway. Um, yeah, to be great at whatever they're going to be. That's exciting. It's so it's so great to hear about. Um you know, people who are really trying to drive an impact and encourage children. There's been so much about how schools squash creativity and create situations where children don't believe in themselves and don't believe in their in their potential. And, you know, there's so many interesting ways that that students today are really uh, exposed to different ways of learning and being able to incorporate that into the classroom, whether it's digital technologies or adaptive technologies that are really helping children sort of adapt to this new world that we're all that we're all in. Can you talk a little bit about um, the gamification of of learning and how that is helpful or useful for children? Yeah, I should probably tell a story about kind of when I had my aha moment. I wasn't a gamer. I, you know, my brother was was kind of a gamer growing up. I definitely played Miss Pac-Man for sure. (laughs) I had an Atari when I was little. But I definitely was not a gamer. But when we were um, starting up this company, it was called iRead, um, and we were studying eye patterns, uh, kids' eye patterns, to see if there were patterns that were predictive of reading challenges at a very early age. Because we were thinking if we could find them before they got to the end of grade three, we could have interventions that help them uh, learn to read. Because once you get past the grade three level, if you haven't learned the skills to reading, you fall behind. They don't teach reading anymore after that. So, so many kids are getting lost. So that was our goal with this with this technology. And we were working with um, uh, researchers at Dalhousie University and um, doing experiments with eye tracking. And they were building, they they were using kind of uh, students to create these user interfaces for kids to do these experiments. And frankly, they were were brutal, (laughs) horrible, (laughs) horrible user interfaces. And we were watching these kids do these experiments and we were thinking, these kids are getting bored pretty much immediately. And we're losing them. Like, we're just losing touch with them. There's no way the data can be valuable because they're just not interested. 
Um, and so we started to get our, our um, designers and UX people to design the games themselves and keep kids actually motivated to want to do these experiments. And that was really my aha moment. I was thinking, maybe it's not even about understanding the eye patterns as much as maybe it's just giving them something super motivating that's delivering that learning. Like if we can engage them in the, in the learning, we can keep them wanting to consume this learning content and and that really set us down a path of trying to deliver learning content through video games kids love um so that that was the aha moment and and since then you know i've really been pushing this idea of replacing the gaming time kids are spending with learning time because kids are spending ten thousand hours right now ten thousand hours before they graduate high school gaming so that's the same amount of time they'll spend in every subject if they have perfect attendance Wow. For me, this is <laughs> it's scary. it's kind of scary. It's also a huge opportunity, right? If we can substitute just some of that time with learning time, it's going to really help kids. So, so that's that's our mission right now. That's what we're driving to do. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's yeah. interesting. I, I definitely know. I have two boys. Yeah. Um, and uh, yes, they spend a lot of time playing games, video games. Uh, I have noticed that they have a, a few things where they do math games. Uh, you know, they slay a dragon or something. And uh, they uh, they they get to keep keep playing or learning new concepts and things like that, and it definitely does keep them motivated um, in a way that I hadn't seen before. So that gives me some hope. But hopefully, you can get some more of that education time in there with that ten thousand hours. Oh, That's yeah. A, yeah. that is an awful awful lot of time. You know, when you so you 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 had this interesting you have this interesting journey where you yourself. Uh, faced a, a learning challenge. You had this design background. You had this aha moment where you thought, "Oh, wait a minute! There might be a better way to to teach kids and engage kids." How did you decide to, you know, become an entrepreneur? Like, what what made you want to do this as a as a business? I mean, you could have just, you know, gone into school and maybe, you know. Uh, figured a few things out there or like what what really drove you to to want to make this a business (laughs) it's a a great question and it's yeah the answer is it's not necessarily what you want to hear so I I went to university (laughs) my first degree um I decided to take leisure studies because I thought who doesn't take leisure studies? <laughs> right. Who doesn't want to leisure? Yeah, exactly. So, so you know, that's it. That's just kind of an outcome of the fact that I hated school so much. I didn't want to take anything academic. Just uh, yeah, something that could be as easy as possible. Um. So yeah. So I I did that. I did that first, and then after NASCAD, I I, I had retired from sport. I was leaving school, and I wanted to find a job. And I went to every agency in the city looking to be hired and no one would hire me I got stood up for job interviews I would have worked for free at the time I was just like give me a shot like I've, I've got I was looking for that person to see the potential again and and no one would like it really was hitting a wall and so I needed uh, I needed cash I needed to support myself um, I had two young kids at the time I, soon after that I became a single mom so I really needed to work um, and so I just started peddling my wares. I would go to, I can't stand, you know, the functions and having to network and, but I would go to all of them and I would just hand out my number to people and say, Hey, you know, you, know, you need, you need business cards. I can do it for you. You need a PowerPoint presentation. I can design. And, uh, it was, um, it was just the, the generosity of, of a doctor here in town, Dr. Ken Rockwood, who said to me, yeah, sure. You know, I need somebody to design some of my stuff. Why don't you come on in? And he was my first client. 
Um, I never wanted to be an entrepreneur. I never set out to be an entrepreneur. I really just set out to pay the bills and, and use the skills that I had to pay the bills. And uh, so after Ken, he started introducing me to other people and I started to build a bit of a business out of that. Um, I, at every step of the journey, I had no idea what I was doing. It was all new to me. Um, and eventually I bought a building over in Dartmouth. It was, an, it was the first fire hall in the HRM and I converted it in, into, into a studio and I called it Queen Street Studios. And the goal for me at that time, I was in my basement with two young kids and I felt like I was illegitimate. <laughs> I felt like I was trying to sell myself to these customers who were great. And I was like, how can they trust me when I'm just this single mom in a basement? You know, I needed <laughs> to feel legitimate. And so I needed a space. I felt like if I had a space, I could I could feel better about how I was presenting myself. And so that studio was fantastic for me. And then inviting people. So it was a, it was actually a shared workspace. It was one of the first kind of shared workspaces in the city. This was back in 2003. And I met so many people. People would join the uh, studio as a member and we had, you know, a green screen and we even had, I think we had podcasting there. Oh, okay. <laughs> we did. Right on, right on. Really <laughs> way ahead, way ahead. But, uh, but met so many amazing people and started to build a really great community of people. And I that for me was my first business and it was a financial disaster. We lost so much money because it was expensive. Um, but it, it also introduced me to kind of the start of being an entrepreneur. Um, yeah, so that's how, that's how I kicked off my career. Mm -hmm. Um, yeah. And it went from there. Okay. I'm always interested in, in, in people's journey, especially at the beginning. Mm -hmm. Uh, a lot of times people will see someone when they're a success and they just assume that they just, you know, poof, just popped into the world. Uh, everything was fully baked and, you know, don't know the story of, of some of the challenges and things that, uh, that have happened along the way. So I really appreciate you sharing yeah. that, uh, that journey. Um, especially for uh, women or moms or other people who are out there who are thinking about that they would like to to go on an entrepreneur's journey. Um, and uh, there could be bumps along the way, but definitely some some opportunities to achieve things that you never thought that you could. Yeah. Yeah. It's um, it's it's funny because I I always knew I wanted to be successful. I didn't know how to get there. It was kind of trying to get from A to Z and not knowing what the letters were in between. And it was really, it was frustrating to think, I know I can be there. I just don't know how. But I think eventually I just kind of embraced this idea of putting one foot in front of the other. Just keep marching forward. And and I've always been amazed at how far you can go. You know, if you just, if you don't, don't hold yourself back and just keep walking forward. And that's become a bit of my motto is just one foot in front of the other and one step at a time. And it's amazing how far you can go. Just keep trucking. Yeah. Well, it sounds like you have definitely put your foot one in front of the other uh, and made some, you know, amazing progress. Um, I had a couple of I just wanted to point out and learn a little bit more because I know your company has recently um, been accepted into the Google Startup Accelerator. How did your company get into that? What was the the journey to to make that happen? Oh, um, that's it's such a big, big thing for our company. We're so excited about it because our company is not just video games. I think it's really important for people to understand. We believe the future of learning is through adaptive technologies that deliver the right content to the right kids at the right time, and to do that, we need to start being extremely sophisticated at understanding who the learners are and what their skill level is and what's going to keep them motivated to keep learning. 
that involves natural language processing, that involves machine learning, that involves AI, it, it involves computational modeling, it involves so much deep tech. And um, so whereas people often just see our video games as very kind of cute games or, or kind of fun games for kids, there's something underneath it, that this technology that's actually in a very sophisticated way, delivering every player the content at their level at the right time. And so Google saw this. So we applied to this accelerator, which is they only admitted a handful of companies um, and we're the only education company. But they, they saw that we had this deeper desire to do adaptive learning. And Google has been in really kind of dominating the learning space, the education space now since kind of the mid 2000s when they started launching their Chromebooks. I want to say back in 2007-ish. They, that's when things kind of started there. And and uh, I think they see a real opportunity for our company to scale um, in a big way. Uh, we were able to attract over a million users in less than 12 months and, and we're growing at a hugely rapid pace right now. And for Google, that's interesting because they can do a lot with data. So working with their teams to use that data to make the technology even more sophisticated uh, is what we're trying to do. We want to be the leader in how education content's delivered to kids, and this will really help us get there uh, and help us connect with teachers. Because like I said, they're, they're in the classroom. Google's in classrooms all over the world right now. So working with them to help distribute our products uh, to teachers all over the world is going to be it's just it's super exciting. Um, I've always wanted to scale this company because of the impact it can have. Um, and I just feel like this is a partnership that's going to go a long way. Oh, that sounds great. That sounds great. I'm, I'm, I'm sure there are many uh, companies that uh, would like to be in your in your space and uh, have have this experience. But I'm so great that uh, grateful that it's yours and that uh, there's a company that's focused on education and children that's yeah. going to make a difference. So that's that's something else that's really great as well. Yeah, it's awesome. Um, I also see that you're on the Prime Minister's Economic uh, Roundtable um, for for women uh, focused on STEM. How did how did that come about, and what do you do for that? Yeah, so the economic um, the digital industries economic strategy table, the DIEST, um, was a table that was put together to help the government understand how to compete um, globally from a digital perspective. It was chaired by Toby Luque of Shopify, and uh, just a fantastic group of people, Alan Lau of uh, Wattpad was was on the committee as well. There's amazing people and I, I learned so much just listening to them. But the idea was that we would come together from an ind- industry perspective and be able to start to identify how we can be more competitive uh, as a nation uh, by using digital technologies. And one of the things that we, we came out with in our report is that digital it's not it's not a strategy it's not a tactic it's an underlying um, fabric of every organization now and so we as a nation really have to be supporting that in in every way we can and you know back to education one of the biggest challenges i've seen is just how many kids don't have good access to technology and to the internet and it's it's a problem it's a big problem and it's something that we have to step up and and fix now that healthcare and education and so many essential services are delivered only online and at times there's no excuse for not allowing um, every child and and parent to have access to these technologies so that was one of our recommendations and we have to make sure that we're we're doing this we're we're getting good connectivity to every canadian so that they can actually participate how can you recognize your potential when you can't participate Right. Um, And this is a big problem. And and that's what keeps me up at night, thinking about what we're doing with our company. 
we made our technology free so that every child could use it without any kind of barrier to access. But we have to work, you know, we have to partner and collaborate to really make sure that they're getting the connectivity and, and the access that, that they need. So that's that's the kind of a mission that I have kind of bigger picture. And and I work with education leaders. Whenever I talk to anyone who's a leader in education, this is always a topic of conversation. What can we do to to be better in this space? And I was really glad to be a part of this table because although we had lots of different recommendations, that one was core. And it was, you know, it's about human rights. It's it's about you know, your right to access what you need to, to recognize your potential again. Yeah, yeah. yeah it's interesting. At, at Onside, we have a focus on inclusive innovation and entrepreneurship. And uh, we see, especially with certain communities, uh, rural being one of them, um, you know, if you don't have access to internet or if you don't have access to um, Chromebooks or technologies, um, you know, there could be serious consequences for the students who are living in those areas. Um, just getting the basics, if the digital infrastructure is not in place, it can be a significant um, barrier just to quality of life, but also to um, access other opportunities down the road. So it's something that we definitely agree is is important. And I'm, I'm so happy to, to hear about the work of the council and that acknowledgement that things need to be done for the students, for actually for all of society, for us to be uh, competitive, uh, create access points, um, and to create a, um, a, a society where there's well-being that can be facilitated by access to some of these tools. Yeah, just simple well-being. And, you know, I'll take that even further. We're just not doing enough. And if I could, you know, you know, if I could push it in any way, I, I, I would push it as hard as I could because, you know, when I look at I'm on the board of Nova Scotia Power, which is a great opportunity for me to learn about a whole new sector. Um, but using that as an example, the utility of power is very important to have well-being, to, to be able to live safely and comfortably. And so when when Nova Scotia Power goes through a storm and can't get the power back up quick enough, they can they can face fines from the regulators. That's just a part of the, the regulations, part of the policy that's been developed. And, and it makes sense because everybody has to be on their toes in terms of making sure everybody has the power to be able to live safely. And, and I don't think it's that much of a stretch to think of technology in the same way these days. If, if a parent can't turn on the internet to be able to access healthcare, or a child can't turn on their device to be able to access school, we can't be okay with that. We need policies in place to make sure that this is changing now. Like we can't wait for this. Kids are, kids are gonna go back to school this fall and there's gonna be a huge number of kids who don't have access to good education and the divide is gonna be so big so fast. So we just, we can't sit back on our heels on this one. We just, we have to be proactive and we have to, it might not, it might feel rough, like it might be expensive and feel rough and hard and like a big challenge, but there's, it just has to happen. We have to find ways to make it happen. So, you know, you know, being a part of those tables is really great, but you know, we have to be doing things that are gonna inspire more action kind of, you know, boots on the ground actually making things happen. Um, yeah, I do get accused of being too much of a doer sometimes. <laughs> no, 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 we need doers. We need doers. We need people who are out there who are passionate um, and, and you know, trying to make a difference. Thinking about that, um, you know, at Onside, we're really interested in innovation-driven entrepreneurship. Um, but your company is innovative. You're using digital technologies. 
But you also have this focus on on education and children and trying to make a difference and trying to create an impact. Would you consider your company a a purpose-led company? And how is that compatible with an innovative company? Yeah, it's absolutely purpose-led. And everybody on our team they're all led because they by the purpose of the company and that's why they're so keen to to work as hard as they do and we're all purpose-driven people I don't see any clash at all with purpose-led and innovation I think I think that innovation is is critical to make big change and there's a lot of big challenges that need to be solved and a lot of them you know have impact so I, I think that those two things are tied so much innovation and and impact are completely tied. Um, the areas where we have the biggest challenges need the biggest change. Uh, so I, I think that we just have to reinvent systems. We have to find new ways to to have systems for things like education. And it, and it takes it takes thinkers that can think very differently. And in a system like education, where it's been done the same way and really the same way, mm-hmm. like the schools the way they're designed today are the same way they were designed in you know the early 1900s. They have not changed. So we need innovators and innovative thinkers to to tackle these problems. And I remember when I first started this company, I had so many people say to me, oh, education, <laughs> why are you getting into education? So hard to sell and it's a, and nobody wants to change. And but like those are the problems I love to tackle, because I think if you can actually do it, oh, it's just think mm-hmm. of that. Like if when we look back, when we're taking these steps and we look back in five, 10 years time, it's going to feel so good because we can make change. You know, these systems have not been around forever um, and and we can do better and we have the tools to do better. So, yeah. So if, if no one's going to do it, then then I will. I'll step up and do that. Mm-hmm. Have you ever found it difficult to to raise funds as a as a kind of purpose led company? Is that difficult to uh, to do? Yeah. Yeah. You know. Uh, my co-founder and I went to Toronto um, in the early days and we were pitching this. Uh, Annette Vachern from uh, Cape Breton here is just a fantastic woman, really believed in what we were doing and helped us get people into a room, these really high profile women. And at the end of the session, one of the women said, you know, you should probably focus a bit less on impact and more about the money that you can return to investors. And I was just it, it fueled my fire. I was just so angry because I don't see those things as mutually exclusive. Not at all. In fact, I think that if you can have impact, you're going to actually increase your likelihood of being able to scale the company from from uh, uh, from uh, from an economic perspective. And so I've never those things have never been divided in my mind and I've never understood why people divide them. And I think that this is coming around. You know, I've noticed recently with so many companies moving to B Corp status and there's investors that really focus on impact and measuring impact. It's it is changing. But definitely at the beginning, it it was kind of a bad word. This, you know, social impact company Mm -hmm. or impact driven company. Yeah. Yeah, it is interesting. I mean, I think uh, in the last probably 10 years or so, there's definitely been a conversation around what is the role of a corporation or how do you create value? What is the what is what is value? Um, And, you know, something we think about is, you know, what is the purpose of innovation and entrepreneurship? Is it just to get a good return and then that's it? Uh, Or is or does it serve a larger purpose? Like, does it is it there to create uh, benefits for the larger larger society or for people around us? 
So it's an interesting conversation. I do think that's starting to change. Mm-hmm. Um, and depending on what kind of um, line of business you're in, uh, definitely your customers, uh, especially the younger customers, are are looking for corporations and for organizations that align with their values. So the conversation has come front and center in a way that I don't think that it had in the past. Mm-hmm. No, yeah. for sure. Yeah. yeah. So just a, just a few more questions, um, and I think uh, one of the questions, that I've, I have two questions. One is whether or not you think entrepreneurship is nurture or nature. Mm-hmm. Um, oh, that's a great question. <laughs> the fact that I never identified as an entrepreneur makes me think that it can't be nature. Mm-hmm. <laughs> why, why did you Why did you not uh, identify as an entrepreneur? I, I just never, ever saw it as a path that I would go down. Mind you, you know, when I was when I was coming up through school, I don't think entrepreneurship was was really talked about as a real path. Um, so it might be different if I were going through now. But I definitely I don't know. I, I, I don't see myself as a business person. I you know, I always hated I'm getting better, but I hated being in the spreadsheets. I hated being kind of the number. I've always had this kind of aversion to like I, I, I really have never loved the idea of being profit driven and having to have huge returns. And and I know that's so motivating for some people, but it's just not for me. It's not at all. Um, my investors are going to hate hearing this when I, <laughs> I do understand the value of it. Um, but for me, it was about just identifying problems and challenges and how can I solve those challenges? And I didn't I didn't tie that to entrepreneurship, but I do think it is. I think it's very, very closely linked to being an entrepreneur. Um, the nurture thing, though, I think is very, very important. So back to having mentors and people who've really seen my potential over the years I've been nurtured into believing that I can do this. I've been nurtured into being given the tools and the resources to to start to believe myself. Yeah, th- this is totally doable. There's a pathway and there you know people know how to do it and they're going to help me get there. There's been a lot of hands up in my journey for sure. And so I think the nurture piece is is very real. And had that not been there, there there wouldn't have been the businesses that I've built. There's no doubt about that. Um, and I try to really always get back to you for that reason. You know, I, I see, I just see so much value in being able to put that hand out and help somebody um, come up because it's not, it shouldn't be, um, it shouldn't be so hard to figure out the path. People have done it. There are models, there's tools, there's resources. It's just about finding people who've done it, who are willing to share that information and that support you down that path. So, um, yeah, no, I, I think the nurture piece is really, really real. And um, it's been a really important part of my journey. Hmm. Well, I'm always interested in that because you, you, you hear different things from different people. Some people say, yeah, you know, you're you have to be an entrepreneur at heart. It's just at the core of your being. And then other people say, well, you know, maybe have a little bit of that, but you really have to nurture it. So it's a it's an, an interesting debate. I, I think. Um, you know, there are many people out there who have a spirit or who have an interest or a curiosity, uh, but may not have known about the journey of entrepreneurship in the same way that you're, you're, you're saying. They had a problem that they wanted to solve, something they needed, a challenge that needed to be met, and they just used their hustle and their, you know, tenacity to just tackle it. And it just so happened to align with, um, you know, becoming an entrepreneur. Yeah. And those those nature pieces are very, very real. Mm-hmm. Being a hard worker, you know, having a huge amount of grit and tenacity, this never quit attitude, you know, even when things are super, super hard. I've started to learn that being able to 
keep the highs under in check and the lows in check too and trying to stay balanced you know and those things have been really really important and then and then I just think bringing it again back to the nurture piece had I not had parents and and people around me who believed in me so much from some such a young age and and I've never ever had to want for anything you know I've always felt safety I think in my life and so that I am very, very aware of the fact that having had that, that fallback, you know, that, that I could take the risks and know that I would never be completely out in the cold. I think that that was a big piece of it as well. I, I, I don't know how you can take those risks if you don't have that safety net behind you. And I think that that's, that must be a challenge for a lot of people who, who want to take these risks, you know, there's different levels of risk taking and I've, my mom told me I was born without a risk gene. So, so I definitely have that in me, but I know a big piece of it was that they would always be there for me or, you know, the people, my community, my friends, my family would always be there for me. And so I know that I'm blessed to, to have had that along my journey. And I think that was a big piece of it as well. Mm. Mm, thank you. Thank you. If you could, um, if you could, uh, if you could turn back time, what would you say to yourself 10 years ago? So you today, looking back at your younger self, what would you say to yourself? I would say, don't worry, you're going to get there. And it's going to be hard, but it's going to be really good. And just enjoy the process. I would also say, don't travel so much. You don't need to. Stay home with your kids. Enjoy them. I think that's what uh, COVID has taught me, is that all of this travel that I used to do to be all to be in all different parts of the world every month uh, and and away from my family it was just really nonsense. We can we can work remotely and and we can be there for the ones that we love. And so I think that enjoying the process and making sure that you you're loving life at the same time as loving your work. Um, I have a I have an advisor who says you know business is just a game. It's just a game that we're all playing. And so you've got to make sure that, that your life is really something that you're enjoying as you as you go down this ride. Yeah, that's great. That's I uh, I definitely can um, attest to being on the road a little bit too much myself. I've definitely been in the airport almost missing a flight uh, trying to get to somebody's birthday party. <laughs> so <Yeah. laughs> I definitely can attest to that. And I'm like, it would have been so handy to have Zoom back then. That would have totally made a, a difference in, in the way that I was going about my work. Uh, that's 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 really great. Um, oh, one thing I, I uh, we forgot to to mention, so I just want to give a quick plug about it because uh, you recently, with your company, uh, were successful in receiving some funding for a excellent research project. So before we before we wrap up, I want to hear just a little tidbit about that. Yeah. So this goes back to the deep learning piece. You know, the technology under our our um, our games. So we started working with Dr. Janet Worker at UBC. She's a Canada Research Chair at UBC uh, on a project to try to understand how technologies can, digital technologies can help with literacy in with um, kids from all different cultures, so all different backgrounds. Uh, and I got to fly out to BC uh, in February and we pitched to a panel and we were successful at getting $5 million in funding for a five-year project. And we're going to be using neurocomputational neuro modeling I don't so, even know what that is. <laughs> so we're going to have kids playing our games and we're going to be doing brain imaging while they play the games. And the data from the play 
um, which is a huge amount of data. So we're going to use computational modeling, which is how, how um, you, you start to use the data to make your technology, uh, to enhance the technology. And we're going to study if we can uh, deliver learning in a way that's more effective to kids based on their cultural background. So one of the things that we've we've seen um, in the research that we would like to apply is that storytelling in North America has been done when you're learning, when you're teaching a child how to how to construct a story, there's a beginning and a middle and an end. It's very structured. Um, sometimes there's no end because you have to maybe predict the end, but it's always it always has that same structure. And recently, other research has been showing that there's kids who are in different cultures who don't have that same kind of structure of storytelling at all. It's much more fluid. It's much more organic. And we're really forcing the structure on them. And there is a way through this research and through using the data to understand the kids and the brain imaging that we can start to get much smarter about how we can deliver learning uh, to our kids. So this is where technology can really come into play in terms of being adaptive and personalized. And we've never had this opportunity before ever in education. So whereas we need teachers more than anything, and I hope that in our conversation today, you know, you, you, you've heard that in, in what I say, because our teachers are our coaches, they're our mentors, they're, they're the ones who inspire us to go as far as we can go. But we have technology now that we can really use to do the, the labor intensive direct instruction stuff that teachers just are not as good at. For you to have 30 kids in a classroom and have to personalize and adapt the instruction for each one of those kids based on where they are at that moment, it's an impossible task to ask any educator. So we need to start to really push ourselves in the field of, of technology and education technology and innovation to have technologies that are better for kids and use teachers for what they're really, really good at. And we've got a long way to go. So this research project is really exciting because it pulls together researchers from institutions all over Canada and the U.S. in various fields and community partners like school districts, Toronto District School Board, Surrey Schools is in it, West Vancouver Schools. And what we're going to be doing is we're going to be testing these technologies and, and finding new ways to deliver education. And this research is going to be open for the industry to use. So this is going to be a whole body of research and learning that the education sector is going to be able to build on um, and new technologies are going to come out of this. And this is this is huge to be a part of this project is transformational. You know, it is this will be one of those pieces of the journey that I'll look back on with with a lot of pride. And it's another high performance team. The people we're working with are just so fantastic. So, yeah, thanks for asking me about it. We're very proud. Yeah. Yeah. I'm excited about it, too. It sounds super cutting edge and along with our theme of innovation driven entrepreneurship. So super exciting. Uh, well, Julia, I want to thank you so much for coming in today to be part of our onside podcast and sharing your journey, talking about your story, talking about your growth, uh, your growth as a as a young person, uh, you know, your struggles, your triumphs uh, and all of that, because it really was quite inspiring and to hear about the work that you're doing in education and technology, as well as the work that you're doing with the the, the councils um, as well and trying to make a large uh, systemic impact in Canada as we try to drive towards a more um, accessible future, digital future for, for all people, um, including teachers, students, and, and everybody. So I'm very excited about that. Uh, last little thing, if people want to learn more about you or your company, where can they go to uh, to get that information? Absolutely. Well, we have two games. We have Squiggle Park 
for the littles, so preschool to grade twos. Um, and there's a there's an app you can download on the app stores, Google or iTunes, uh, or you can play it online, squigglepark.com. And then Dreamscape is for the older kids. That's grades three to eight. Super fun. And parents can play it with their kids. I checked it out. <laughs> yeah. I checked it out. I was like, ooh, this looks neat. <laughs> yeah, it's really, really fun. And uh, again, it's there's a Dreamscape app on both the app stores or they can play online, but at the squigglepark.com website. So, yeah. That's awesome. That's awesome. Well, I want to thank you for joining us. I also want to thank our amazing Onside podcast audience for for listening in and hearing about uh, your journey today. And please connect with us. Please listen to our upcoming podcasts, our old podcasts. And you can learn more about Onside on our website, which is onsidenow.ca. Thank you.